Hello and welcome in. Thanks for joining us for another edition of the Frary and Smith podcast. The 2023 season, it was a banner year for Sunbelt football, a season that saw a record 12 teams finish with at least a 6-6 six and six record, a mark that ultimately led the country. James Madison finished 11-2 and two and appeared in the program's first bowl game. Today, we'll put their 2023 season in review as we kick off our annual in-review series. But before we do, we wanted to tell you about our last two episodes. Caden and I released our Sunbelt East and West Bowl Season recaps earlier this week where we broke down each of the league's 12 bowl results. ESPN play-by-play Anish Shroff and Texas State reporter Kev Chardello provided their perspectives on the seasons for James Madison and Texas State. If you haven't listened yet, make sure you go back and do just that. Today on episode 169 of the show, it's time to put the James Madison Dukes in review. Voice of the Dukes, Dave Rigert, will join us shortly to break down the recently completed 2023 season. Plus, Caden and I are going to provide some brief thoughts on the year. Caden, there's no other way to, to describe the Dukes 2023 season. It was one of a kind. It featured a 10-0 start, a number 21 ranking, the third appearance of college game day in Harrisonburg. By the way, the largest crowd ever the program's first bowl game, and Caden, it was a fitting ending to one of the best FCS to FBS transitions in college football history. What are you going to remember most, partner, about uh, this season for James Madison? Well, as a defensive-minded guy, no, my mind just immediately goes to that defensive line and that what that defense was able to accomplish this year. But just watching the dominance they were able to have up front on defense, how that was able to carry that side of the ball, and then offensively watching a quarterback like Jordan McLeod go from not starting to starting to growing and evolving into one of the best quarterbacks we've seen in the conference in recent history. Just a perfect storm, I think, of all of the ingredients of talent getting put together with a head coach at the helm that clearly was the right man for the job and them having this historic season they were able to have. So just really the perfect storm that this season was for JMU, everything working for this team all the way up until their bowl game. Let's be honest, Kate. It took a lot for you not to say App State upsetting James Madison. Let's just be honest here. Well, James Madison's Dave Rigger is here. Let's not waste any more time. It's time to review the Duke's 2023 season. Well, we are excited to be joined by the voice of the James Madison Dukes, Dave Rigger, to put James Madison in review. Dave, thanks for coming on the Ferrari and Smith podcast. Absolutely, fellas. How you guys doing? Hey, everything is going well. Football season in the rearview mirror, and now we turn our attention to the offseason. Dave, let's set the stage a little bit. You debuted as the voice of the Dukes in the early 2021 season, uh, the school's final year at the FCS level. That year ends in the FCS semifinals with a loss to North Dakota State. JMU then joins the Sun Belt that coming summer. What were your early impressions of this program, and why did you think they'd be successful at the FBS level? Well, early on, you know, when I got the job, I I didn't know a ton about James Madison. I saw the job open up, and obviously being in the Midwest my entire career, you know, I had heard about JMU and and following a little bit of FCS, but not a ton. I, I hadn't heard a ton about James Madison. Then I dove right into it. When the job was open, it would be a good job. And, and you know, when I first got here, you could tell why they were successful. The culture that had been built here, that Coach Signetti continued. Again, it started before Coach Signetti and had, had continued for a long time. But just the way they operate, um, not just even football in, in their entire athletic department, and that's playing out right now in, in really all the sports the last couple of years in the Sun Belt. Um, you could just tell it was different. Um, I had been at some different spots um, at Division Two and NAIA and, and had, had dabbled in some Division One stuff. But, you know, it was just different here. And, you know, I, I liken it to I had Diamante Tucker Dorsey 
um, as my color analyst on the bowl game th- this past season when they when they played Air Force. And Diamante is a guy that his last year at JMU was my first year, and then he transferred to Texas for his grad year and played one year for the Longhorns. And he said the culture at at JMU is better than the culture at Texas. So again, that speaks volumes, and I could see that right away when I got the job. So you know, w- when they made the jump to FBS, obviously it, it was it was a perfect time for me to take that job, and then all of a sudden they're an FBS school and, and all that. But I had a I had a suspicion they'd be successful. I didn't think they'd be as successful as what they are right now. I'd be lying if I said that they uh, nineteen and four <laughs> in the regular season the last two years. I mean, I, I'd be lying if I thought that was going to be the case. Um, I thought they'd be a five hundred team and, and, and compete in the East, but to do what they've done these, these first two years in the Sun Belt has just been nothing short, short of spectacular. Um, but, but it is because of their belief to win. The first Sun Belt media day that the JMU was a part of a couple of years ago, all the coaches were talking about how, you know, they'll be fine making the move because they expect to win. They have that culture. They expect that they're going to win every single football game. And that's a real thing. Again, coaches, they want their teams to believe in that. And and this team certainly believes in it wholeheartedly. And that's part of why they've had so much success so far. Great perspective there, Dave. Really appreciate that. And thanks for having, having you on the show yet again. Uh, now you've had a front row seat to this program for the past two years for this dominant two years. They've had 10-0 start this season hosting college game day nationally ranked defense, a high-powered offense, and now this year they had their first ever bowl appearance. What will you remember most specifically about this year's JMU team and what you were able to watch on a weekly basis? You know, it's being in the position that I am, I'm pretty fortunate to kind of get the the behind-the-scenes look. And obviously we get to see what it is every Saturday on the field and, and how they play and what they what the numbers are and what they tell you and the record there was. But, you know, I just I the thing that, that I'll remember most probably with this team is just how connected they were. And, and that's the one thing that really has taken place the last couple of years with this team and why they've had success is, man, they 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 brought in great guys to this program. And, and that's a credit to the coaching staff. But they connected on and off the football field, just a lot of great guys. And that's part of why they had the success that they did is just they were so connected on and off the field. When you talk to them, again, it wasn't offense versus defense. If the offense struggled a game, the defense wasn't talking down or ripping them or anything like that. They were picking each other up, and that was always the case. They won so many close games this year, and that shows – I mean, that's something that I think I'll remember with this team, too. All the close games early on, the Virginia comeback win, the win at Troy when they had to hold on and hold them um, out of the end zone for four consecutive possessions down the stretch, the Utah State game where they blew a 24-point lead but then made plays down the stretch to find a way to win on the road for the third consecutive week, and just on and on. So many close wins, and that shows you how connected this team was, how together this team was. And I don't I don't think I've ever seen a team that's been as connected as as this team was this year, and it was probably even more than it was a year ago. Um, but just be able to pull out those close wins and find ways to, to figure out. Even the App State loss, they, they looked like they were dead in the water, and then they came back and forced overtime. It's just, it just showed the connection that this team had. and it, It's just being able to see that in practice and on a daily basis. That's what I'll take. Just And that, that's the great part of my job, to be able to see that every day in practice. Well, Dave, let's take a step back now and kind of start where all of this began, and that was in the offseason. After last year, this program lost some all-timers, a Chris Thornton, a, a Percy, a Jay Obisay, plus you lose the Sunbelt Offensive Player of the Year and Todd Centeno. This team then reloads through the transfer portal in the offseason, but there were obviously some unknowns heading into this year. What was the confidence level like from this team in the offseason heading into fall camp? 
there were some big question marks. I think everybody thought the defense was going to be fine. They had nine starters back. They had their linebackers back. James Carpenter was back. Their defensive ends, even though they lost Isaac Ukwu to, to Ole Miss, they still had depth at the defensive end spot. Um, they had young corners. They had a secondary that was a veteran safety group. So I think defensively they thought they would be just fine, and, and obviously they were. But there were huge question marks on offense. The offensive line was all back, so there wasn't a question mark there. They had some depth at tight end. But and running back was pretty solid, bringing in Tyson Lott and Kalon Black and Latrell Palmer. But at quarterback and wide receiver, there were so many unknowns. Jordan McLeod coming in didn't even win the job. That's some. Caden asked the question. That's something I'll probably remember with this team too. He didn't win the job out of fall camp, and, and Alonzo Barnett did the redshirt freshman. And to see to see Jordan, sometimes a guy that comes down from a power five level to the group of five. You know, they they feel like they should just earn the job, that they should have the job. And if they don't win the job, then they may look elsewhere or they may kind of throw it in and, and, and you know, not work to, to get the job back. Well, he didn't he didn't fret. He, he just came to work, put his head down. And when he got the opportunity, then he ran with it and had a, a sensational year. But there was a huge question mark at quarterback um, that, that no one really knew. Jordan McLeod hadn't played for a couple of years. Uh, Lons Barnett was a redshirt freshman. That they, they had high expectations, but you just never knew what was going to happen there. And to have Jordan McLeod have the year that he had, again, his numbers were better than Todd Santeo's, and Todd Santeo is beloved here. So um, I think Jordan McLeod will be as well. Uh, but then the receiver sport, I, I think that was, that was a huge question mark. Reggie Brown was the only one coming back. They lost three of their top four receivers. Reggie Brown was the only one coming back. And he was coming back, but the most receptions he had had in any season, was 24. So it's not like he had a 50-catch season for 800 yards and eight touchdowns, something like that. So there was a huge, huge concern about the wide receivers and who these quarterbacks were going to throw to. And there were some ups and downs during fall camp. It wasn't all, all roses in fall camp. Um, there were overthrows, underthrows, lots of interceptions, and they were trying to figure it out. But another, Elijah Surratt, obviously he's at Indiana now. Um, he nearly broke the school record for receptions in the season. He didn't start the year as a starting wide receiver on this team either. So he worked his way into that position. But Phoenix Sproles coming in from North Dakota State, Reggie Brown obviously taking off, and those two guys getting 1,000 yards, and Reggie and Elijah. Um, there were major question marks with this offense. The defense we, we thought would be good, but the, the offense, we were wondering if it was just going to be kind of three yards in a cloud of dust, run the football, and, and just manage the passing game a little bit. But it didn't certainly turn into that. No, there's no doubt that that offseason quarterback battle that you mentioned was definitely something that was looked at. Very strongly, you mentioned Jordan McLeod, Alonzo Barnett, Brett Griffiths, Billy Atkins were all in that battle. Coach Signetti called it a four-way battle throughout camp. What ultimately led to Alonzo Barnett's getting the, the start and getting that that starting job, you would say, through camp? We talk about and we know what Jordan McLeod turned into, but during fall camp, what would you say led to Alonzo winning that job and maybe a guy who could win this job going forward next season? Well, he had a better camp. I was at every every single practice. He had a better camp. So I think the decision was probably the right one to, to have Alonzo Barnett be the starting quarterback. Um, Jordan McLeod, there was a lot of rust. And he he had a lot of underthrows, a lot of overthrows. He threw more interceptions than Alonzo did in the fall um, when they kept the stats for every single day. They looked really closely at those guys. And Jordan McLeod was a starting quarterback for day one of fall camp. From day two on, it was Alonzo Barnett. And, you know, I, I think he he – he grew a ton from his freshman to his sophomore year. You see that a ton um, with, with most players. They grow a ton from their freshman to sophomore year. 
and, and he certainly did. And he, he knew the offense maybe a little bit better. He came in um, early from, from high school. He was there for that, that, that spring season. Um, he graduated high school early and came in, so we knew the offense very well. So they were pretty comfortable with him. And they kind of gave him the keys to the car and, and said, hey, don't wreck it. And unfortunately, he did in, in the first game against Bucknell. But he had a better fall camp. Um, I, I think the numbers bear that out, and that's why they went with, with Lonza Barnett. So um, give him credit for winning the job. But then, again, Jordan McLeod for not hanging his head and still working and, and being a good teammate and still trying to push Alonzo and then ultimately winning the job um, says a lot about that young man too. Dave, you're jumping ahead on us a little bit here, but now we all know what happened next. Obviously, Jordan McLeod enters <laughs> in the second half of that game. He keeps that job for the rest of the year. Now, the one thing we did hear was a lot of noise early on about the relationship between Coach Signetti and Jordan. Shed some light on the early weeks of Jordan's transition into that spot as QB1. Um, there were some rough days. Um, there's no qu- question about that. Um, Jordan is a guy that came in, and I, I think – the reason Todd Santeo became really beloved by the coaching staff, by the fan base, is his work ethic. And he came in and put his head down and he worked. He worked his tail off to get to what to where he was and what he did. And Jordan, he he was a guy that came in, uh, he came in a semester as a transfer, and he was the only one that didn't have his paperwork done, or, or didn't have it done. Everybody else had their paperwork done. He's the only one that didn't. So he was kind of behind the eight ball, just kind of, you know, you know, going through the motions a little bit. And, and um, not that he has a bad work ethic, but just kind of went through the motions a little bit. And he hadn't played in a while. It's a new place. He had never been here. It took a while for him to kind of get accustomed to everything. And um, I think that Coach Signetti is a no-nonsense guy, and, and I think that put him in his doghouse. I don't think there's any question about that. But Coach Signetti also said to me when I interviewed him after the season, after the regular season was over, he said he's never seen a player grow more in one calendar year than Jordan McLeod. So that says a lot about Jordan. Again, he, he came in, and I don't know if it's immaturity or not. I think it's still a guy from a Power 5 school coming to a group of five thinking that, oh, this is going to be easy. You know, some guys think it is. I can play here. Anybody can play here. You know, I, I, I was at South Florida. I was at Arizona. I can come play at JMU. No big deal. And then, and Todd Santel, when he did that, he came in, and I remember him telling me, there's some dudes here. There's some guys that can play. I didn't realize that. And I think it took a while for Jordan to kind of figure that out. And, and, and throughout fall camp, um, I think some of the interceptions and some of the body language that he had, I don't know that he was the greatest leader in the world during fall camp. And then I think once he got into the game, you know, when the lights come on and it's shining on a Saturday, some guys are gamers. And Coach Signet even called Elijah Surratt a gamer at times and wasn't a great practice player. But he – he made no bones about it early when Jordan took over at Virginia in the next couple of weeks. He goes, you know, Jordan's got to get better in practice. And, and he did. Give him credit. He got better. He, he took the criticism, which Coach Signetti, he's a very smart man, and he will say things in the media so his players find that out. So his coaches find that out. So, so he, he's kind of calling them out without calling them out. And to do that to Jordan publicly in the media, you don't see that from him very often. But Jordan, again, he, he could have been combative. He wasn't. He got to work. He was better in the film room and just kind of went to work. So there was a little bit of angst early in camp just because I don't know that, that he was putting in a full day's work that the coaches wanted him to. But then he turned it around and, and give that young man a ton of credit. Definitely have to give him his credit, especially given that he wins some ball player of the year honors after throwing for 
43 touchdowns that season, putting up over 4,000 yards. You talked about Coach Signetti detailing how he grew the most throughout the season out of any of the other players he's seen. Where did you see Jordan McLeod grow the most? And maybe what impressed you the most about his game, just watching him on a weekly basis, especially given just the quarterback pedigree and the amount of guys who've come through the door and done well at that position compared to what Jordan was able to do this year? Well, early in the year, even the Virginia game, the Utah State game, the Troy game, um, he was he wasn't going through his progressions. He was missing a lot of stuff. And Coach Signetti, the coaching staff, they, they pointed that out, that you know there, there were a lot of plays out there that should have been made, that, that, that weren't made. And I think that started to diminish every single week. And I think it, it was probably, this, probably the Utah State game, maybe, right, maybe the Georgia Southern game right after that, the South Alabama game as well. You know, he started to really stand in the pocket and not have the happy feet and go through his progression. He started to take some hits and deliver the football over the middle to Reggie and to Elijah and those guys. He wasn't doing that early in the season. He was making plays still and doing a good job and, and certainly deserved to, to win the job and, and early on. But about halfway through the season, he started to take some shots and deliver the football. And that's when you could kind of start to become that it factor that you see in quarterbacks. And then you could see his his teammates kind of pick him up and, and follow. And that wasn't always the case early in the year. He was he was kind of another guy. It wasn't quite his team yet. He didn't win the job out of fall camp. So how could it quite be his team? Well, once he started to take shots, deliver the football, and, and make plays that, okay, that's a play that he wasn't making early, that now he's going through his progression. He's going through his second, third, fourth read, maybe maybe checking it down when he needs to, and, and even throwing the ball out of bounds instead of taking a sack or throwing it to the other team. I think his his, his teammates really started to buy in then, and they, they're just like, okay, He's taken a step. This is his team now. Here's the it factor. And then that really took off about midway through that this season. Yeah, thanks for shedding some light on that. I think it's just interesting to kind of hear that progression uh, that Jordan went through on the way to arguably one of the best uh, seasons as a quarterback in recent Sunbelt history. Dave, we're going to get back to the offense a little bit later on, but a big part of this team's success this year was that defense. It was headlined by arguably amongst the best front sevens in college football this year. They stopped the run better than anyone else. And honestly, they made opposing quarterbacks live out a nightmare on a game-to-game basis. We've had Jalen Green and Jamory Chroma both on this show. They've shared their thoughts on the secret to the success of that unit. Give us your thoughts about what made that group so successful this year. Um, just those were guys were relentless. Their work ethic, um, just their ability. They were, none of those guys were highly recruited guys. I mean, James Carpenter was a walk-on. Jamory Chroma went to, to Rutgers, but... It never in three years there. He he had twenty three total tackles in three seasons. Uh, Jalen Green had four and a half sacks in four years prior to this year. So they weren't highly recruited guys, but you know they stayed the course. Their work ethic was just phenomenal. Pat Kuntz, um, who who went with Coach Signetti to Indiana, he's a tremendous defensive line coach, very detail oriented. Um, he would have spreadsheets for these guys and go through almost every play in practice and and write down. Every player on what they did right, wrong, and what how they could improve and everything, they were very detail-oriented in getting those guys to, uh, to to be the best that they could be. And that was a little bit of a concern coming in, too, with the depth at defensive line. We knew they had some players, um, but then they lose Abby Nwaku Okonji in week one, and, and so they're down a defensive end. Essentially, they're with um, Mikhail Kamara and Jalen Green for most of the year, and that's about it. And then Jamry Krumal will slide out and play some defensive end. Didn't have a ton of depth inside. Tyreek Tucker emerged. Emmanuel Bush late in the season emerged. So 
Um, I think just the work ethic for those guys, being able to play 50, 60 steps per game, that's almost unheard of on the defensive line. Normally you want to shuffle guys in and give them some rest. And that's what JMU was kind of used to in the past, where they'd bring four guys in, four guys out, and, and keep them fresh and and healthy. This team couldn't do it. They couldn't afford to do it. And they just didn't didn't have the depth, didn't have the young guys develop quite enough. So that defensive line to see what they did, it's just their relentless will to get better and and just the effort that they put in. And Jalen Green was absolutely amazing this year. Um, He's, you know, and and those kids are all great kids. (laughs) If you get to know them and you've had a couple of them on, you can can get a sense of just the type of players that they are and, and what they give every single down and Jalen Green to see his season come to an end short after the Georgia State game was just heartbreaking um he was going to set records he did anyway and still almost led the nation in sacks and, and missed it by a half half sack to um the kid from from Troy so he uh he was phenomenal and, and the everybody on that defense said we are good because of the front four and there's no doubt that's the linebackers could run free and make tackles the secondary didn't have to cover for very long because they were getting the quarterback the defensive line made that defense, and they were phenomenal all year long. Yeah, there's no doubt their preparation, their work ethic, and just the effort they played with on Saturdays really paid off for them this year. And Dave, we've gone as long as we can without asking a question about Kirk Signetti, so here we go. This is a guy who's been a staple <laughs> of the program now for the past five seasons, dating back to the FCS days, bringing JMU through to this FBS j- transition, and of course, bringing his uni- unique personality to the table throughout the whole process. He's now with Indiana. What do you think his legacy will be when fans look back at him maybe five years from now as far as what he did at James Madison? Well, fans may need five years because I think they're unhappy with him right now. So, <laughs> um, But, you know, it was sad to see him go. What he's done here is nothing short of amazing. I mean, again, we talk about the transition. He was the perfect coach for the transition. Um, he had been at the Power 5 level. He had been at the FBS level at North Carolina State at Alabama for a long time. He knew what it took. When, when, when they first announced the move, to the Sun Belt, um, I was in his office talking to him and we were talking about this and he's just like, I think I am the perfect person for this because I know what it takes at the FBS level. There's a lot of FCS programs where that coach has only been at the FCS level and, and, and maybe wouldn't know the transition very well. So he was the perfect coach for this transition. He's a no-nonsense guy, as you guys well know. You mentioned his personality. It is a little bit different at times, but he's got he's got a good sense of humor when you meet talk to him off the football field. Again, he's a hoot. Um, he's 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 a great football coach. And the one thing that he did with his team, and you know, Jamie right now and Coach Chesney, they're getting a lot of they're getting some power five transfers coming in here right now. You know, he didn't Coach Signetti didn't have a ton of power five transfers. He had some. He had some and he had a lot that didn't work out. The first year of the FBS, they had three ACC guys weren't even on the team on opening day. They were with the team in the spring and weren't even on with the team on opening day because it didn't work out. So he got guys from Colorado State like Todd Santeo or, or, or St. Francis like Elijah Surratt and you know Tyson Lawton from Stony Brook. And they, they were able to win a Sun Belt East championship with guys like that because they developed them. He's got a great coaching staff. He lets his coaches coach. And um, he, he's been able to develop tremendous football teams. He was the perfect coach for this transition. And I think once the desk settles and everything like that, and they forget about coach going to Indiana and some of the things he said, um, they will look back fondly on the five years because he was the perfect coach for the transition. And he did a, a phenomenal job with this program. Hey, everyone, we're interrupting today's show to tell you about our recently released Prairie and Smith podcast newsletter. Subscribers will receive weekly emails when new episodes release, as well as information about the top Sunbelt football storylines that week. 
You can subscribe today using the link in the show notes of this episode or by clicking the link in our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter bios. It's the best way to keep up with the Sunbelt football and the Prairie and Smith podcast. Now let's get back to the rest of today's episode. Dave, that's some great perspective, and I can tell you that we will always look back fondly on the Kurt Signetti era all the way back to his initial comments at Sunbelt Media Day about JMU running the Sunbelt one day. (laughs) He was also the first ever person to drop a four-letter word on the Ferrarian Smith podcast, so we will always uh, remember that into the future. But He's done well with me before, too. <laughs> I mean, he, he can be a little colorful. We all know that. But he can. Dave, we briefly touched on it earlier, but this team begins the season 10-0. They earn a national ranking, and ultimately college game days coming back to Harrisonburg with App State in town. The Dukes ultimately suffer their first loss of the season that day, but describe the scene that weekend in Harrisonburg and and what it meant not only to this university, but to this loyal fan base that we've come to admire. I've never seen anything like it, fellas. Um, I walked up, I got there probably 7.30 in the morning, and it was jam-packed with people. And I I talked to somebody from ESPN when I got there because they were going to give us a behind-the-scenes look at everything. And at 7.30, they said that's probably the biggest crowd they've had the entire year already at 7.30, and the show obviously wasn't even on until 9 o'clock. So they were expecting a big crowd. They got, again, an estimated 26,000, which crushes the record. Um, It meant so much to this fan base. Uh, Obviously, you guys know this fan base is rabid. Um, Sometimes they're they're a little too fanatic at times, but most fan bases are. And that's part of what makes James Madison special is the fan base and the love of football, the love of just JMU in general, all the sports programs, but especially football. Um, that's what makes it special. And to have College Game Day come back, um, they had obviously great experiences their previous two times in the FCS. But to come back as an FBS program, um, it's hard to get College Game Day if you're not a Power 5 school. And now JMU is the only group of five team that, that has had it three times. Um, and, and I think just because of the showing that they had, unfortunately, again, they, they lost the game. So that puts a little stain on it. But just because of the atmosphere, and, and I know Scott Van Pelt the other day, the best, best college game, the atmosphere this year happened at James Madison. And obviously, um, our, our fans have been phenomenal throughout this entire – they've been clamoring for the FBS for so long. Again, it almost happened 10 years ago, but Jeff Bourne and his staff, they were very patient in what they wanted to do and wanted to do it right. And obviously, they did it right um, by waiting and taking their turn and, and making this uh, making this happen here the last couple of years. But, you know, it, it meant so much to this fan base and the university. Again, you just can't buy that exposure to, to just look at the university. I mean, it's uh, they, they played some of my calls on the broadcast. That was cool for me to hear. My mom's texting me, hey, they just, they just, you know, <laughs> no, they just played your call on college game day. You know, just things like that. You don't think of, but it, it's there's so much exposure for the program and for the university, for Harrisonburg, for, for the campus, for the quad where they were at. Um, you just can't and, and to have them show out like they did. You know, if the Dukes are in position like they were this past season, they'll probably come back because of the support that they've had and, and the ratings that they get when when they come to, to Harrisonburg, to, to James Madison. No, me and Noah were able to make it to App State when they hosted college game day two years ago, and it's definitely just a, a once-in-a-lifetime experience as far as the energy and the impact it has long-term. So hopefully mm-hmm. the Sunbelt can keep the streak up of hosting college game day every year. But <laughs> no Dave, doubt. one of the overarching storylines of this season was JMU's postseason implications and them not being able to play in a bowl game. That wish ultimately comes true when they're selected to play in the Armed Forces Bowl against Air Force, but it wasn't their best performance of the year. Could have seen possibly the coach turnover and some players in the transfer portal maybe playing an impact on that. Did you sense any sense of distraction or anything different that resulted in kind of the performance we saw from James Madison against Air Force in that bowl game to end the season? 
Well, I'll start with what you talked about first and just the, you know, a lot of people were thinking it would be a distraction during the year when, when there were, again, the thoughts of, of lawsuits being filed and different things like this and people bringing up the fact that, Jamie, you can't play in a bowl game, can't compete for the conference championship. And there was talk about that almost every single week, almost every single day. I mean, it was it was it was <laughs> it was pretty fierce throughout the entire year. But the one thing that that I am so proud of this football team is that they didn't let that become a distraction. If it would have been a distraction, they would have lost two or three or four football games and not been ten and zero when when App State came around. Um, there were so many people talking about it and they just, they just went to work and handle their business. And that's the one thing too, that, that these last couple of years, when it was determined they were jumping to FBS, you, you know, there was, there was talk that this team was not going to play in a bowl game for a couple of years. They couldn't win the conference championship for a couple of years. And a lot of the players could have left and they didn't. Antoine Wells went to South Carolina. Diamante Tucker Dorsey went to Texas. Wesley McCormick went to West Virginia. Isaac Uku went to Ole Miss. Those are the major losses. Four guys to Power Five schools in two years. That's amazing that they were able to keep everybody, almost everybody that they wanted around for this transition when those kids knew it was no guarantee to play in a bowl game and they could not compete for a conference championship. And then when the ruling came down after the first year, again, year one, they knew that wasn't going to happen. But in year two, they thought they had a good chance to win the ruling and, and play for the conference championship, be in a bowl game. When that came down and the NCAA did not favor in that, you know, I thought guys would transfer it. It happened right after spring ball. I thought guys would jump in the portal and, and, and okay, we can't play for a championship. I'm going to go play for a championship somewhere else. Guys didn't do that. No, Nobody left after spring ball except for Isaac Uku. That was it. They kept the guys around because the culture and the attitude of this program is just so strong. That's the one thing that's been amazing. And it, it, they didn't let it become a distraction during the year. Now, for the bowl game, I think that was completely different because the coaching staff had left. There was talk that Coach Signetti, I think they, they wanted him to be the coach of the bowl game. And then he goes to Indiana and says, I'm 90% Indiana, 10% JMU. Well, JMU said, well, we don't want your 10%. Stay in Bloomington. We'll figure it out. Coach Robo stabilized everything, and then he brought in some guys to help out. It, they were in an uphill battle the entire time. I don't think people realized the, the battle that they were in. And I give so many of the guys that went to the transfer portal. Again, a lot of the guys were Indiana. There were, I think, 18 guys that went to the portal. Almost all of them played, except for three. And, and that's that speaks to what I talked about earlier. What I'm going to remember from this team is how connected they were. Those guys wanted to finish it out the right way. Now, unfortunately, they didn't. But again, they didn't have their entire co coaching staff. They had retired coaches coming in that were trying to figure out the, the triple option. And I just, Coach Robo's trying to call the plays and be, be a position coach and do this. He had never done it before. He's got the headset on trying to make the head coaching decisions and then calling the plays. I think it was just more than they bargained for. They did the best that they possibly could. They were in the game for the most part the entire way and they gave it their all. But I think that... Ultimately, they, they were in an uphill battle from day one when the coaching staff decided to leave early for Indiana to try and win that football game. It would have been a, a, a Hail Mary to try and win it. They gave it their all on that coaching staff. I give them a ton of credit for stabilizing everything, and they did have fun and, and, and did a good job to prepare, did everything they could. Again, ultimately just fell short.
Definitely an interesting perspective there. Caden has talked about some times at App State when he was having to play in a bowl game through a coaching change and just some of the unique difficulties that that creates. But Dave, I promise one more question about the offense. We've got to talk about this wide receiver core. You kind of talked about them earlier. Reggie Brown and Elijah Surratt, they both finished the year with over 1,000 yards on the season. I loved what Phoenix Sproles brought as well. You can't leave a guy yeah. like Zach Horton out. Uh, this unit was so much fun to watch all year. What did you love about that group? I just the versatility from these guys, I think, was outstanding. They could play different positions. Um, Reggie Brown mainly played on the outside, but they put him in the slot at times. You know, in the spring, they had Phoenix Sproles on the outside and didn't have him as a slot receiver. And then they moved him to slot receiver in fall camp, and I thought that was brilliant. And then they were able to bring Elijah Surratt. You know, he began fall camp with an injury. So that's kind of – he was behind the eight ball and didn't practice the first week of fall camp. So that kind of put him behind the eight ball, and that's why he wasn't a starter early on. But then you could see he, he started to get going. But Elijah's the guy that, that was kind of the, the gritty guy over the middle with slants and the RPO passes that, that he would break for big plays. Reggie was their big play threat. Uh, Phoenix was the guy that did the dirty work. And, again, 10 catches for 99 yards, never going to have a big yards per catch average, but a guy that would move the chains and get you some tough yards here and there. So, And those three had to play a ton of snaps. They had some freshmen behind them and not a ton of depth at receiver. And, again, that was the question coming in, if those guys could uh, could handle that, and they did. I mean, those those three were phenomenal all year long. They almost all finished with over 50 catches. And, obviously, Elijah and Reggie went for over 1,000 yards, the first duo in the Sun Belt to ever do that, the second duo at JMU to ever do it with Antoine Wells and Chris Thornton a couple of seasons ago. But um, those guys exceeded expectations, in my opinion, because, again, there were so many question marks coming in, and they were so versatile that they could move them around, and they didn't have to come off the football field. They could play different positions and, and really thrive in whatever they needed to do. No, it was definitely fun to watch all of those players grow as Jordan McLeod grew and them just getting the most out of those players in the offense throughout the season. And speaking of people getting a lot out of their personnel, athletic director Jeff Bourne quickly – made a decision when Kirk Signetti left. He hires Bob Chesney from Holy Cross to step into that role as the head coach from Everett Weathers to Mike Houston, most recently Coach Signetti. This guy has not missed as far as getting hires wrong. Now we know the end of the road's coming from as far as being the JMU athletic director. Could you maybe talk about the impact Jeff Bourne's been able to have during his tenure with the Dukes? I don't have enough time to explain the impact that he's had, fellas, because it has been monumental. He's been here 25 years and he probably deserves a statue somewhere on campus for what he's done with this program. Um, and not just football, but all the athletic programs, winning national championships in lacrosse and field hockey and, and, and obviously national championships in, in football at the FCS level and now what they've done. Um, it, it's amazing to, to see. And again, this is just my third season being here, but he's so beloved and, and he's done such remarkable things throughout his tenure with building up this fan base, the facilities are top-notch. You guys have been out here. You got to tour and, and see the facilities, baseball and softball. Um, they're upgrading those. Softball's on a different level right now. Baseball's on its way. The Atlantic Union Bank Center for basketball, um, that is one of the best buildings in America, in my opinion, at the group, group of five level. And, uh, I mean, I, we go around the Sun Belt, and there's none better than the Atlantic Union Bank Center. So that was a big piece of the puzzle to try and get this, get the, the university to another level is get basketball um, to a, a different level spot than where it had been, especially the men's basketball program had been mediocre. They had been toiling in mediocrity for a long, long time, for about 20 years. And, and finally now Coach Byington has done a great job. They've got a new building and, and so much excitement around that program being in the top 25 for so many weeks this season and being 14 and one. So, you know, it's been phenomenal to, to see him um, just kind of transform this university. 
And, and it, it's not just the athletic department. He's transformed the university. I mean, um, President Alger has talked about how because of what athletics does, that puts JMU on the map and that, that increases admissions. And, and there are over 22,000 students now. So it's a, it's a huge student population. And it's just the, the administration, whether that be in athletics or with the university, they just they work hand in hand. They're very connected as well, and they work off of each other so well. So uh, Jeff Bourne has meant so much. Again, it's monumental what he is he has meant to this university and to this program, and, and again to this this whole region. Um, he's done so much, so much. He'll be missed, um, and this will be a, a highly sought after position, I would imagine, with what Jamie is doing with their athletic department. Yeah, suffice to say, the person who follows Jeff Bourne in that AD role <laughs> yeah. is going to have some massive shoes to fill, and. Speaking about another guy with some big shoes to fill, Bob Chesney, his era is here. He's been around this program for about a month now. He was successful at the FCS level at Holy Cross. I think he crushed his opening press conference, Dave. Give us just some quick early impressions of Bob Chesney. I love Bob Chesney. The, the first conversations I had, um, he sold me on on his vision, on what he wants to do with this program. And he said it during his introductory press conference. Yeah, he's he's been at the FCS level but he came from NAI to Division Three to Division Two to FCS, and he's he's coached his programs like they were an FBS program, like they were an NFL program. He did lots of homework to kind of figure out what the best way um, to do different things were, and, and he talked to a lot of NFL teams, a lot of FBS teams, to try to figure out what the best way to to do that. But he's such a players' coach. Um, I went to, he was in town um, for a day and then came back for his press conference. And, and the day before his press conference, um, I had an interview with him. So I did a one-on-one with him and he's just like, all right, let, I'm, I got to run down to practice. I want to see um, what they're doing down there. They were getting ready for, for the bowl game. Well, he jumped in and he started doing a few different things and just showing the guys. And, and again, they, he had talked to some of them that didn't even know all the players, but he's jumping in and practice and doing competition drills that he is going to implement in the practice as they prepare for the bowl game. Now, he wasn't going to step on Coach Robo's shoes or anything like that, but he implemented some things. And I had some guys at practice be like, this is the most fun we've had at practice ever. I mean, this is unbelievable. Some of the things that he's adding to practice, the competition pieces that he's putting into place. And again, they were falling in love with him immediately. Some of the players on, on this, and a lot of the seniors were like, man, I wish I had another year where I could play for this guy. So um, they all bought in right away. Obviously, a lot of the guys that he tried to keep them, they ended up going with the coaching staff to Indiana. And, and again, you can't blame them for, for kind of being with what they know and they had fallen in love with those those assistant coaches and those position coaches but coach coach Chesney is going to do a great job here he is the perfect man for this job he understands the culture he understands how to continue building the culture how to to take the next step i think with this um he knows he doesn't have to reinvent the wheel here it's it's in it's pretty well oiled right now and uh, he's already brought in a lot of transfers he kept some of the recruits that were um, already on board of the previous staff. So he's done a great job early on in getting the right people in place. And I think he's assembled a great coaching staff um, with some, some <laughs> he's got some guys that used to play here. He's retained a couple of coaches from the previous staff and Coach Whitley and Coach Robo. He's got some ACC ties with Coach Hemphill coming in as a defensive coordinator. So I think he's assembled a tremendous staff around him. And I think he will, uh, he's going to get the most out of his players. He's going to be, he's going to, He's a player's coach, and I think they, they love him already, and he's going to get the most out of these guys. I can't wait to see what he's got in store.
It'll definitely be fun to watch him in his first season taking over this program and just seeing more coaches get opportunities starting at lower levels and working their way up. You think of a Kalen DeBoer in Washington and what he's able to do. So hopefully Coach Chesney is right. able to do the same. But you mentioned it. Coach Signetti's Coach departure did come with a number of players leaving in the transfer portal, whether that was with him in Indiana or elsewhere. Did that kind of portal exodus surprise you at all? And how would you assess the job, as you mentioned, that Chesney has been doing with his staff as far as trying to fill some of those holes that have left this season and keep things afloat heading into 2024? You know, it didn't really surprise me that all those guys went to Indiana. Um, I think if Coach Signetti had just gone and not taken as many coaches as he, he took six coaches with him. So, I mean, he took most of the staff. And like I said earlier, he really empowers his coaches to coach their position and really get to know those guys. Aiden Fisher, Jalen Walker, the two great linebackers for JMU are at Indiana now. They're there because of Bryant Haynes, the defensive coordinator and linebackers coach. Nothing against Coach Signetti. Again, they had great respect for him and everything, but they're there because of Bryant Haynes. Um, Zach Horton is probably Indiana because of Grant Kane, who was a tight ends coach and special teams coordinator. And all those guys built tremendous relationships. Um, Mikhail Kamara. Um, James Carpenter, they're there because of Pat Coons uh, being at Indiana. They, so that's why it doesn't surprise me that they left because I know the type of relationships that the players had with those assistant coaches. And that's ultimately, I think, why they went there. They're comfortable. They understand. They, they know that those coaches got them to where they are. Again, a lot of those guys weren't highly recruited, but they got to where they were and were so successful because of those assistant coaches. So it didn't surprise me um, that they left. It, I know Coach Chesney tried everything he could to try and get them, but again, also, it didn't surprise me because Indiana, being a Big Ten school, more NIL money as well. So that's always going to be part of it, and those guys are probably getting quite a bit of that as well. But Coach Chesney's done a great job. Um, as of right now, he's got 13 guys committed out of the portal. Um, Dylan Morris from Washington, their backup quarterback, was a starter for a couple of years. Um, that was a, a pretty big time gift. They've got a receiver from Mississippi State. They've got a bunch of offensive linemen coming in. D lineman from Syracuse, a kid from LIU that had 18 and a half sacks the last couple seasons. So um, he was a defensive player of the year in their league. So he's done a really good job of getting to filling some holes. I think he looked at this roster. And the one thing that really helped Coach Chesney and his coaching staff, and it hasn't been announced yet, but he had some of the guys from Holy Cross already here on campus to be able to watch this team practice for the bowl game. So to have those eyes on the players that are still on this team is enormous. That will help them because normally they don't get to see them to the spring. Yeah, they get to see them work out and do all that, but they got to see them actually practice and, and see their habits, see their body language, and really get to know these guys and get to talk to them a little bit. So to have those eyes on those players during the bull practice, I think, was enormous to kind of see what holes they did need to fill. And I think for the most part, they've done that so far with the transfer portal and brought in some pretty talented guys so that I think will uh, continue to, to make JMU hopefully one of the top teams in the Sun Belt East. Well, Dave, you've been very generous with your time. We're going to end with this. JMU's transition to the FBS, it's finally complete. I'm sure the fans are glad to hear us say that, but <laughs> this team will have a chance to finally compete for a conference title in 2024. The coaching staff, as we mentioned, it's going to look different. There's going to be a number of new faces. Just real quick, what are your expectations for the 2024 version of the JMU Dukes? But with the, the, the portal guys that they brought in, the returning players that they have, I think there will be some question marks. And again, it's, it's always a challenge with a new coaching staff. But I really do think that they're, they've, I think they've actually upgraded some positions with some of the guys coming in. And again, you never know how the transfer guys are going to work out. Um, but from, from what I understand with Coach Chesney, when he's done that at Holy Cross or other places, 
he gets the most out of his guys. He just really does. And I think this coaching staff's going to do a good job. I think this team will compete for the East Championship again. I really do. I, I think they're going to be that talented. I think they've got enough guys that have stuck around. And there's some guys that came out of the portal that decided to stay. I think their offensive line will be very talented. Um, I, I think their running back room is really talented. They've got a kid from North Carolina and from North Texas who have come in through the portal. Um, defensively, they've, they've filled some holes at linebacker and defensive line. They've got two really good corners that, that have stuck around here in, in D'Angelo Pons and Chauncey Logan. They need some help at safety a little bit. I think that's an area that they still need some help at. But uh, Jacob Thomas is back. I think this team has all the pieces in place that they can compete for a Sunbelt East championship again. Will they? Who knows? Again, you never know. But I think they've got the pieces in place where even right now, and, and I think the roster is still going to change between now and, and when they kick it off in September, I think this team can still compete for these championships. Well, it will certainly be excited to see what James Madison has in store in the 2024 season. Dave, we appreciate you taking some time to put James Madison in review today and certainly wish you best of luck in the remainder of the football offseason as basketball and baseball ramps up for you. No one, Caden. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Anytime, fellas. Well, Caden, if you looked at my rundown for this episode, I have a spot here that says Caden Noah interview thoughts after that conversation with Dave Rigger. Honestly, Cato, we don't have to use that time because that was about as in-depth of a conversation as we've had. And uh, Dave really provided a lot of fantastic insight on the James Madison program and their outlook moving forward. Definitely, Noah. You think you have a program figured out or you know a lot about a program by doing a podcast about their conference for three days a week during the football season. Then you hear a guy like Dave drop some gems and give us some really of those insight of the, the beginning of the season, the middle and the end, and kind of pulling back the curtain and seeing what this team really looked like kind of in their locker room and in some of their other moments that weren't publicized. So definitely great to have him give us that insight and provide that extra level of detail when it comes to what this James Madison team was able to do this year. And don't worry, we're just getting started. That was just the first episode in our Sunbelt in review series. Again, we'd like to say a special thank you to James Madison's Dave Rigert for helping make today's conversation happen. Kate and I are looking forward to recapping the 2023 seasons for each of the Sunbelt teams in the weeks ahead using the voices that you're used to hearing every Saturday. With that in mind, here's a quick reminder. We're going to be back again on Monday. We'll be releasing the second installment in our in-review series, focusing on the Appalachian State Mountaineers. Voice of the Mountaineers, Adam Witten, will join us. You're going to want to give it a listen. That'll do it for us here at the Farron Smith Podcast. Do us a favor. Before you go, leave us a five-star review, and then make sure to continue telling your friends about this show. So for Caden Smith, Richmond Weaver, and Brett Jemis, I'm Noah Freire. We really appreciate you spending time with us today. Well, that's goodbye for now. We'll talk to you again soon.